So <clears throat> I perceive a little questioning in your eyes about who this guy is up here. Since I know about half a dozen of you uh, from previous retreats, the vast majority I don't know at all. And uh, so just, uh, just in terms of the style of my presentation, <clears throat> uh, I try to use words and uh, metaphors that may take us out of our traditional way of thinking about Dharma. And I do that uh, deliberately because it was very helpful to me to hear Dharma from a slightly different slant uh, because it made me release the traditional way I held the words <clears throat> and to look at it something anew from a fresh approach gave me often insight into the ways that I might have been uh, obstructing that clearer vision from my old perspective. So uh, maybe it don't, you don't have to worry that it isn't within the Buddhist tradition. If you're a cucumber and you've sat in brine water, pickled water for 35 years, after 35 years, you're a pickle. After 35 years of being in Buddhism, I'm a pickle. <laughs> and it may not be you're used to dill pickles and I'm a sweet pickle or vice versa, but pickles we are here. And uh, that is my... <laughs> I, I can't say anything that isn't Buddhist from my point of view. So... Now, uh, I'd like to start out with just a very imposing question. What are we doing here? Why are we sitting here? And I would really invite a clear investigation of the reason why we're here. We may all have our reasons and our intentions and our ideas of a destination, but to look at it from, to, to shake ourselves a little bit, and to re-invite a curiosity into that question. And what is it that we hope to find in our willingness to sit hour after hour, diligently, and with a great deal of, of effort that's needed to carry the continuity of this practice forward? But what is, what is this about? And one of the ways we can frame what this tradition is about, is that it brings us to stillness. So let us just invite that perspective in for a moment. You see, every if we hold that perspective, then all of the tasks that we do around that perspective have a particular intention towards understanding the noise that we make so that we can come to stillness. And as we sit, most of us see a eruption of noise within us, don't we? We sit down and thoughts are just in abundance here. Now, I also like to ask the question, because I don't think anything is done to us. I think we do it all, right? Why is it that we invite our thinking? 
You see, what is it? What that seems to be obstructing our stillness, doesn't it? It seems to be keeping us from the heart and direction of this path. Now, why is it that we invest so heavily in being noisy so that we won't be able to access that stillness? That's a legitimate question. And as we begin to understand and begin to be quiet a little bit with ourselves, we begin to see what we get out of being noisy. We get each other. You get yourself, I get myself. We get the distinctive life that we live. We get the array of objects and presentations. And we get, perhaps most importantly, our story through the navigation of all those objects and people. We get meaning and purpose. We get intention. We get our lives. So it's not without a great deal of humility that we have to look at Buddhism in terms of accessing stillness when we get so much out of being noisy. We get a tremendous amount out of being noisy. Now from that perspective, do you want to go to stillness? Because that's where this is taking us. There's just a one-way road. And some of us put suddenly put our heels in. So, well, perhaps not so quickly. Perhaps I'd like to linger a little while within the noise of my own making. Perhaps I would just like to enjoy it a while longer. Fair enough. A teacher of mine said, there's no rush as long as you're pointed in the right direction and keep walking and are honest because perhaps most fundamentally when we take on this practice, we have to bring forth that sense of sincerity, of honesty, of being willing to look and admit where we're not willing to go as as well as our intention to complete the path and to be able to admit full-heartedly why I'm not willing to go there why we keep ourselves with such noise. And when we begin to look more into this noise, we see how much we've invested in the noise and we see how terrifying the stillness is. And so there may be moments of our practice when the noise abates and when we actually touch the fabric of that quiet, of that stillness. And what we do in order to cover up that hole that we just dropped into is we come back and claim reference of that stillness with our noise. Oh, I just had a meditation that was so quiet. I love that quiet. I'll see if I can find it again. And that way I can cover over the stillness and make it 
approachable from my noise. And I keep everything within the organizational, within my own organizational principles. Now the Buddha referenced noise from a quite a, a little different perspective. Any reference to stillness from a little different perspective. He talked about suffering. So how does suffering and noise fit together? How are they? How do they um, arrive at the same point? When we start looking at the nature of the way we invest in noise, we can see that our thoughts carry us away from the present, from the present, can't we? And that it's through the investment of our thinking that projects us outside of this here and now situation that keeps us somehow distant from it. Desire and fear, we wish for something other than what is present. That wishing creates its own noise and its own resistance. Why is it resistant and therefore painful? Because it's not present. There is the present, and there there is my wishing for the present to be different than the way it is. That wishing is the noise I'm making about and from the present that is my resistance or the pain and suffering I have to the present. And therefore the eradication or elimination of suffering is stillness. And when we see stillness from the understanding of noise, the the negation of the truth of noise is another way of saying it. Do you understand what I mean? When we have seen through the need to tell ourselves a story that's counter to the actual living presence of the moment, When we're willing to do that, we end suffering. And there are multiple forms and expressions of suffering. And most of us have lived fully today within some fixation or another. And many of us are very sophisticated on this retreat because we've gotten your questionnaires and we know how many retreats you've done, and there are many very, very sophisticated meditators. And mostly, sophisticated meditators make a mistake, especially on the first day of practice. Because you've been through countless retreats, you know how a meditation retreat unfolds and that you have to kind of grin and bear it through the first couple of days of sleepiness and the attack of the hindrances to get to the middle part where you can be a little quieter 
a little less of a rub, a little less of a resistant pattern. And yet, the first day or two is as close to your everyday mind as you'll ever be on this retreat. Because you're the noisiest. And our relationship to those first couple of days are often in terms of a greater resistance. We don't like it. We have to settle in. We know it'll go. Just bear with it. I can get through this thing. And that, my friends, is how we relate to our lives. The same degree of aversion, because this requires a spark from us. This requires an intentionality to know ourselves completely regardless of the difficulty that this moment might be providing. In fact, the real sign of a sophisticated meditator, of a mature meditator, is one who knows that fact, that their call is to the call of the difficult, not to the easy, And that they're willing to go and move wherever that call might be most predominant. To feel the truth of moving into the difficult with understanding, not with aversion, not to get over it, which is more noise. When you want to get over something and we're aversive to it, we're creating a whole storyline and relationship to it. And so we're meeting the aversion we have to the difficult. A reason something is difficult to begin with is that we have aversion. And so we're meeting it with the same method, the same means of its derivation. But when we know, when I go like this, that means that something important is going to be said. (laughs) When we know that the path, this path, leads towards stillness, then how is it that we meet the noise of the difficult? With stillness, with quietude. Because if we meet it in any other way, we merely fan the flames of the reactive pattern. You see, we really need to know the fundamental direction that this practice takes. Because then we can apply the means, which is not different than the ends. If we apply a different means than our ends, then we'll arrive at a different ends. So when we understand that the resolution of our suffering is stillness, 
then the means we apply to get there with all the noise of our reactivity has to be still. So we feel whatever we feel. Not with investing another reactive pattern into what we feel. Rather, just from, this, just from the awareness itself. We hold something just with the awareness itself. Because the awareness itself, not the reactive pattern, is the stillness we seek. Where else are we going to find it? We're not going to find it in our mind. We're not going to find it in the scheming strategies that we employ to become still. We're not going to find it in the navigation. We're not going to find it in the... We can't buy our way out of it. Although in the West, seeking pleasure is as close to what we consider nirvana as, a, as we get. But for many of us in this room, we have, are wise enough to know that that isn't going to give us what we really yearn for in our hearts. Nevertheless, that tendency to move towards pleasure rather than stillness is very ingrained in all of us. In all of us. And we can see the possibilities of running our meditation through that gamut, through within the direction of pleasure, can't we? I mean, today we were talking about the breath and the quietude of the breath and the calmness of the breath. It gets pretty good in there, doesn't it? It gets pretty good in there. And then when our knee hurts, you know, we have a choice to make here. Why, why break the calm? Why go there? That doesn't feel... You know, Buddhism is, we think, is supposed to make us feel good. Right? We didn't get in this thing to feel bad. It's supposed to make us feel good. We even read, it makes you happier, more joyful. So where is it? Where is that? I mean, none of us got in here to be miserable. And yet when we sit down, that's pretty much all we see. So where's, where's the payoff here? <laughs> and so many of us navigate our meditation so that we can get that payoff prematurely. And there are a whole array of possibilities to be able to do just that within our meditation. Because, and for those of you who have done several retreats, know that you can find a very nice holding, safe harbor, very nice safe harbor in your mind with some of these very alluring states of mind. 
And it's not that those states of mind aren't important, but they are not important in and for themselves. Again, it is not that they are not important, but they are not important for themselves. Which means what? You see, they provide the optimum environment for seeing. But if you're making a window and spending your whole time fixing the glass and the frame, making it just the right size and polishing the glass, you're never going to look through the window. Looking through the window is what the glass is meant to do. These states of mind provide an environment for seeing. In fact, seeing brings these states of mind. It's like a magnet. But because these states of nine can be so seductive, some of us like to play around those edges rather than to do what the profound object of this meditation is meant to do, the profound purpose, which is to really see what this thing is, to really look at it. And to do that, if we think honesty, we are honest people. We will be tested. Our honesty will be tested for, and true humility will arise in that. For we'll see all our games. We'll see the pain associated with all those games. Because once we know that the elimination or the understanding, better said, of suffering leads to the end of suffering, then we look, we become very sensitive to any ways and expressions in which we suffer. We become very sensitive to it. But if we have been sidetracked, we will see suffering as something to avoid so that we can get back on track towards the more alluring qualities that our meditation has the pleasure-seeking aspect of our meditation. This is not a small thing. This goes very deeply in for a long period of time into most people's sitting practice. But when we know in our heart that any noise, resistance, also known as suffering, our, our lives, our spiritual lives depend upon its resolution. And we develop the intentionality, which is equally as important as the direction, 
to go into that and to understand wherever there is this, that contraction, wherever there is that rub, wherever there is that resistance. then those wonderful manifestations and states of mind help us all along the way. They do the supportive job that they need to do, but they don't become ends in themselves. And it's the resolution of the conflict. And what does it mean to resolve conflict? Let's just look at a few. How about the conflict of time? How about that one? How about losing ourselves in the past and future of things and to really tune in to the rub, to the resistance, to the pain associated with that? Are we aware of that? Including in that is the understanding of time as a desire, as a fear. Because fear and desire is nothing more than an invested sequence of time. Let me just bring it down to an understandable level. When I want something, it's obvious that it's not here at hand, or I wouldn't be wanting it, right? So there's an investment in an imaginative reality. I, t- I time travel. And there's a rub associated with time travel. Desire hurts. And so the willingness to see the hurt, the pain associated with desire, to see that the joy of the present is perturbed through desire and fear, allows us to call ourselves back. Said differently, allows us, allows a return because we don't call ourselves back. Because, because the very sense of you is time travel. So when we come back, we come back to stillness. And stillness doesn't hold me. And that's why it's so frightening to be truly present. You see, how about the pain of distance? How far I have to go, how much I have to learn, how far away I am from freedom. How about that expression of pain? Even the thought of being on a journey means that I'm not where the journey's end is. And this pain associated with that Now, if we're really honest, if we really want to end suffering, what would that mean in terms of the journey's end?
about the pain of polarity, the pain of differentiation, the pain of comparison and contrast. How about the pain associated with being one way and wanting to be another? You realize that that is painful? When we create an image for ourselves and try to obtain that through effort, do we realize the pain associated? This is the resolution of suffering. This is the resolution of suffering. about the pain of duality, the pain of my holding life outside myself, the isolation I feel from life, the distance I feel. Where there is no abiding, there's no resolution. How can there be a resolution to two things? And so when we start seeing the nuanced way that we invest in a painful perspective of life by keeping it outside of oneself and all the ways we invest in that pain through the pain of polarity, the pain of time, the pain of distance, how serious are we towards the final resolution of this? It's as if the Buddha were talking, he said, "This I teach suffering and the end of suffering. So he was pointing right. And most of us go left. What does it mean to resolve suffering? And am I using the means for ending it, or am I further creating, am I creating further suffering from the very ways that I practice? Because I will not resolve suffering by creating more tension within myself to get there. So sometimes I invite people to have a word a word that holds the end of suffering for you, like love, like contentment, like freedom. And then I invite people to use that word to see whether and how close or how far away they are from that word. Where is their love in this moment? Where is their contentment in this moment? And what we begin to see is that immediately is where we're not content. It doesn't suddenly, the clouds don't open and suddenly we're content just by offering ourselves that word. In fact, what it does is it makes you more sensitive to where we're not content. 
And then what do we do in that moment when we see how discontent we are? Do we try to get over that discontentment to become content? Or is there a way to hold that discontentment that allows us to come to contentment? Because that is the frame of reference for ending suffering. So see if you can find a word that perhaps means that, means something to you. Is your journey's intention? And then in your practice, when you're feeling the tensions within your practice, invite that word to come forth. Where is there love in this moment? Where is there freedom in this moment? Where is the resolution? Absolute, these are absolute words, not relative words. Absolute resolution in this moment. And you know what happens is we get very still. We get very quiet. We get very small. We get very small. And we have a new orientation to the sounds around us, to the noises we make. Because we see that contentment cannot be invested in that noise for its final resolution. We see we have to hold this thing very differently, very differently. And that it requires everything from us. And it may take us to a crisis within our practice because we've been doing it this way for so long. Where is contentment in this moment? For if it is not here, it is not to be found. See the conviction that arises from us now is not the conviction of self mastering his or her own journey. It is the conviction of the heart towards its total resolution, towards putting down the suffering. This was the Buddha's entire message.
And it takes what I call radical accountability from each one of us. Where we're unwilling, the Buddha said, when you suffer, you, a, a person can do one of f- four things, or maybe it was, yeah, four things. He said, you can blame external situations, you can blame yourself, you can despair, or you can investigate. And he said, of those four, only the latter has any merit. And so this radical accountability is to shut off all leakage towards blame. It's not about the shuffling neighbor to your left, the yogi, the meditator. It's not about the doubt we have in our own ability. It's not about that. It has nothing to do with anything. Neither does your neighbor have anything to do with anything. It has nothing to do with the sunken heaviness we feel in despair of being unable to meet the task. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with our resolution of heart to seek and come to a resolution of this suffering here and now, to look, to see, to see what is here, to meet it, to understand, to look. And to not be fooled. Enough of that. Where is there stillness in this moment? Just in asking that question, we become quieter. Or, if we see we still want noise, which many of us still do, and that's, there's not a, it's not a shame, we're not blaming ourselves, then a mature meditator will start looking at what they get out of noise and see if the payoff is worth the price. That's all. And the Buddha said, the payoff will never be worth the price. Never. Whatever you think you're getting out of it, you'll see that the pain that you actually are getting out of it will be, will, the, the pleasure will pale by comparison to that. So all again, even if we feel an unresolved heart, just be honest. If we can just be honest, and say, okay, what am I getting out of this thing? What am I getting out of this noise? What I still like it. I still want myself around. That's fine. Now let me just check myself out and see what I'm getting from myself. See if it's the payoff of being myself is so precious and so valuable. And let's look at the pain associated with this presentation as well. Let me just look at that. And it dries up very quickly with that honesty with radical accountability. 
well, you can't say I'm not getting it because, you know, the circumstances aren't right. The teachers, if I just didn't have those teachers, I could have better, you know, then I could have it. Or you know, my legs hurt. And so if I just didn't have, if I wasn't so old, if I didn't have the creaky joints, if, if, if. Can't say that. We get very interested in this. If we knew absolutely that we were that all of our suffering was self-inflicted, if we knew that, this practice would end like that. The resolution of this practice, we would be so interested in where we are inflicting pain on ourselves. this thing would go very quickly. So that radical accountability, the willingness not to have seepage of blame. Is essential. Because all we're doing in meditation is making the unconscious conscious that's all we're doing where we are blinded where we're not looking we invite awareness awareness does everything just making the unconscious conscious and it's not as if somehow we think that if we keep something unconscious, we won't have to actually face it. And when we do make it conscious, we do have to face it. Well, we don't have to face it when we're unconscious, consciously, by definition, but we still have to face its effect upon us. We don't get out of the effect it has on us. So why not make it conscious? Deal with the painful issue up front, moving into it rather than away from it, with more conscious attention, and resolve the problem completely, rather than to pretend it's not there. Those really are our only choices. And to begin to see how the tensions, the unconscious tensions, create the boundaries that we have drawn a line and said, this is over there and I'm over here. And we keep drawing narrower and narrower boundaries, closing around ourselves, corralling ourselves in smaller and smaller areas so that if you've ever seen an infant who is just born into their consciousness, 
there's no differentiation between external and internal. They're just, they're all, it's all, they're just waving around something, some kind of ocean. But then we set a boundary between external and internal. We set a boundary between body and mind. We set a boundary within the mind, between what we like in the mind and what we don't. And we just keep closing down in that corridor. And each one of those boundaries we set creates the tension of our life. And so when we are willing to look at the tension of our life and when we're willing to really see into the nature of, of those boundary formations, we get quieter with each release of a boundary because we're coming out of noise, which is the only way we can form a boundary is through telling ourselves how we have to be protected by it. And as we eliminate each boundary, we feel the inward sense of greater space and the resounding sense of greater quiet. Because we're no longer held within the fear of what we thought it was. And we just keep coming. We do exactly the opposite things that we have done, which has been creating a smaller corridor for ourselves. We create a larger and larger field until there are no walls at all, until the ocean is known. So let us at least know our direction. And if our direction seems compromised in some way, that's okay. This is not fault-finding. You're not a bad meditator. Just go to that compromise and see whether you're getting what you wanted out of it, whether it's serving you to compromise yourself in that way, just to be honest again. For this is the path of honesty. The path of honesty. the path of kindness, the path of gentleness. Thank you. Can we sit for a minute or two? So as you said, as we said, where is there stillness in this moment? Where is there contentment in this moment? Where is there non-resistance in this moment?
where is the end of suffering in this moment? Enjoy yourself. And that is not in conflict with whatever I said tonight. Enjoy yourself. For there is no greater joy than self-discovery. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.